0: Well, bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's give this service to God. This is gonna be, you know, this is two weeks in a row with uh, this preface um, that it's a subject that's a little tough, but it's also one of those that is very, very rewarding. I promise you, if you can break free, if you can get through this hurdle and hear this honestly, instead of... What happens so often, as soon as you know the subject is coming up, you, you know, a lot of people stiffen up and they sort of put their hands out spiritually and they fold their arms. And if you won't do that, I promise you there's joy and there's abundant living. There's great things on the other side of this, but we've got to get over this hurdle. So let's pray. Father, we just give this service to you, Lord. Thank you for the worship, the opportunity, and the privilege to lift high the name of Jesus, Lord, who you sent. and and gave. The greatest gift ever given is you departing with your son for a time, uh, Lord, that he could lay down his innocent life and pave the way back for us to be rescued and brought home, God. And we don't look at that and appreciate it for what it is, Father. And because we've sinned and chosen to go our own way, there are many barriers to that journey home to be with you, God. And today we're going to talk about one of them that's huge. And God, my prayers that you'd break down the walls, like we just sang, we'll go ahead and, and, and admit this and own it and receive it and get through it. May we leave more transformed than when we came today in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you take your Bibles, your physical Bibles, your technical phone, iPad Bibles, and turn to Luke 16. Luke 16, our, our, journal, our journal, our journey through the gospel of Luke with Dr. Luke. Luke was a physician. And so we get a lot more of the physical aspects and a lot more observation in Luke than any of the other gospels. Another angle from Luke that I love that some of the other gospels don't quite hone in on is Luke's the only Gentile author, the only non-Jew in the New Testament. So we get a lot of perspectives that are from a wider perspective than just a Jewish background. And well, it comes that our journey in Luke has brought us to chapter 16. We find yet another story about stuff. Another story about our stuff, what we own, and at this point, undoubtedly, some of you are starting to pick up on the fact that Jesus talks a lot about our stuff. I mean, we've been in now over a year in the Gospel of Luke, and, and I've brought this up many times. In fact, if you've been with me for a while, you've heard me say this, and let me just remind you, Jesus talks more about our stuff than he talks uh, about faith in the Bible, than he, well, the whole New Testament does not talk as much about faith, hope, love, love, prayer, uh, heaven, hell, as it do, any of those subjects as it does uh, about our stuff, about stewardship, about this whole idea of money and, and giving. It talks more about giving and stewardship than actually all those subjects I just mentioned combined. But you probably haven't heard me say this before because I actually didn't know this before. Um, the single greatest subject in the entire New Testament is our stuff. In the gospel of Luke that we are in, a full one-sixth of the entire book, and it's the longest gospel, is about our stuff. There's 38 parables, stories that Jesus told, 12 of them. The full story from beginning to end of 12 of them is about our stuff. I mean, when Jesus, when the Son of God talks about a subject repeatedly, more so than things that matter of life or death and eternity combined, we have to stop. I mean, logically, we have got to stop and go, why? Why? Now, we know that, I mean, Jesus, when he walked this earth, he was basically homeless. He camped out. Uh, He didn't have a whole wardrobe of clothes. He didn't have a nice home, like I just said. He didn't have a lot of... So obviously, this wasn't a get-rich-quick scheme for him. It wasn't a way for him to be able to talk about our stuff, and then hopefully some he'd say to the disciples, now, you need to get everybody to send in a seed faith, and then we'll promise to multiply it 10,000-fold and send it back, and then we'll get rich. It's an incredible scam. It works all the time. And if you just want to know if it works, just turn on the uh, TV stations where you see a lot of televangelists, and I'm telling you, it works. Only that's not in the Word of God. That's twisting the Word of God. That's a scam. So... The fact that it's most, uh, or or, or greater, or just, I'm sorry, just a little less than half of Jesus' powerful parables, his stories, the fact that it's talked about more than faith, hope, and love, and heaven and hell, and all those combined, and the single greatest subject, uh, single subject in the New Testament, does not make it the most important thing. Please don't hear me saying that. It doesn't make it the most important thing in the Bible, but here's what it may very well do. It may very well make it the most dangerous. That's what I think God's trying to get us to see, that to walk a life with Jesus, the single most dangerous thing, the single biggest hurdle, the single most possible thing that is gonna keep us from Jesus is going to be our stuff, and God knows it. And God knows it. If we don't get over this hurdle, chances are, we're not gonna love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're not gonna love our neighbors as ourselves. We're not gonna fulfill the Great Commission. We're not gonna live the life that God made us for, in fact, just just two chapters from where we are right now in chapter 16, Jesus confirms that if, if you love your stuff, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to enter the kingdom of God. He confirms it. And you might want to write this down. Luke 18.25 basically says it. And you've heard this before. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound hard? I haven't seen a lot of camels go through the eyes of a needle unless they're giant needles, but no, it's impossible. In, In fact, without the help of God, if you love your money, you will not enter the kingdom of God. It's that serious. He didn't put that out there to go, well, that's a very slim possibility. He put that out there to go that it's a zero possibility. If money is on the throne of your heart, you will not go to heaven. Is that more blunt? Is that more, you understand why I put it that way? Some of you are probably going, that's not true. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Oh, yes, it does in many different ways. God alone can be your God. Money cannot be your God. So let's take a serious look at this. Why? I mean, why is it so hard to come to God if money is blinding you? Well, check this out. Perhaps it's because a person's wealth sometimes seems to have the ability to bring the things that we think we think we want a lot. Think about it. I haven't met too many people that if, if you went up to them and said, listen, I've got a million dollars. I don't know what to do with it. It's just kind of, I found it laying around. I don't want it. Do you? I haven't met many people that say, no, I don't want it either. And I doubt we're going to be able to unload this. It's a problem. I don't know what we're going to do. Just, just throw it out. Maybe somebody will pick it up. As... No, everybody wants it. I haven't met too many people who say, no, I turned that down. I mean, we think we want it. Why? We think we want it because maybe <clears throat> money can make our life that if it's uncomfortable, money might make it comfortable, right? What else might money do? Not... Why don't you tell me what your more immature neighbors think money might do? Go ahead, throw it out there. Not you, but you know them. What do you think? Money might do what? <sighs> Make you more popular. Exactly. We can buy popularity. We wouldn't want to think of it that way, but it's very, very true. What else? Might make you happy. That's probably the biggest one. You're lonely. You're unhappy. I need more money. That'll make me happy. We don't often connect the dots and ask why. What else? Might make me more powerful. Might make me more prestigious. I'm uncomfortable. I'm poor. Might make me, Obviously, it'll make me rich. It'll make me more comfortable. I'm insecure. I'm scared. I can buy bodyguards. I mean, think about it. We think all the things that are bad about life can be solved most with money. More things you don't need. Yeah. And guess what? That basically makes money. It makes money a functional savior. I mean, am I right? I mean, that's where it's a problem. It makes money a functional savior where we say, you know, save me from my loneliness. If I only had money, I could, fill in the blank. Save me from my horribly uncomfortable life. If I only had money, I could be comfortable. Save me from my loneliness. If I only had money, I could be popular. And so the problem with money is it becomes a functional God, becomes a functional savior for happiness, good health, comfort, popularity, power, you name it. That's why it's such a hurdle. So we make it a goal to grab as much of it as possible. And the danger comes when we spend so much time and effort trying to grab hold of something that's so elusive and, and has so many bad things attached to it if it's a God. And by the way, please don't ever hear me say that money's bad. You know, people misquote the scripture. The, you know, money is the root of all evil. The Bible never says that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. So let me put it the way that, that, that I think that is intended there. Making money a God is the root of all evil. Worshipping money is the, is the root of all evil. Actually loving it is the root of all evil. Money itself is neutral. It's nothing. There are a lot of very, very godly people in Scripture that were very rich. Uh, Job was very, very rich, very, very wealthy. Solomon was very, very wealthy. David was very, very wealthy. Abraham was very, very wealthy. Go on and on and on the list. And some people that were very, very godly I think of Jeremiah, Isaiah, were very, very poor. It, it's, it's largely irrelevant but money in and of itself is just neutral. But when you cross that line and you start loving it, it's not neutral anymore. You've put it on the throne of your life. It's basically a functional God. So when you grab hold of it, here's what a lot of people don't realize. When you grab a hold of money, you're like, I got it. No, you don't. It's got you. You don't have money. When you make it your God and you grab a hold of it and it's been your savior and you thought, now I can be happy. Now everything will go good. Now my life will turn around and you grab a hold of it. Just try to imagine a much larger hand grabbing yours. Or try to imagine that as long as you keep that grip, you are basically trapped. And and you guys have to get this. Let me illustrate.
1: Take a look. The baboons always have a secret supply of water and they're not going to tell anybody where it is. And when a machalahari ventures into the deep Kalahari on a hunting trip, he has to find water, because unlike the bushman, he doesn't know how to make liquid from a root. But he has his own way of finding out where the water is. First, he laboriously drills a hole in a giant ant-heap, when he is sure a baboon is watching him, because he knows baboons are incurably inquisitive. Next, he puts some wild melon seeds into the hole and works them in so that they drop into a hollow. Then he saunters off, knowing the baboon is burning with curiosity. The baboon doesn't trust that human being at all, so he plays it cool. But he's dying to know what gives in that confounded hole. Finally, Mr. Inquisitive can't take it any longer. He's got to know what's in there. He reaches in, grabs a fistful, and now his hand's too big to come out. If he had the sense to drop the seed, he could free his hand. Now he lets go when it's too late. So that was a smart enough way to catch a baboon, but he still has to make him talk. So,
0: <laughs> some of you looking at that goat, so Pastor Rob, you're calling us all a bunch of baboons. Is that what you're doing? Pretty much, let's pray. No, that's not what I'm doing, but if the chew fits or the non chew fits, No, but when we allow things and possessions and money to ascend to the very throne of our heart, when we get this idea that if we just grab a hold of that, we'll grab a hold of life and happy life and and joy and abundance and friends and everything will be great, we don't realize, I don't think any, I've ever met anybody that loves money that realizes when you grab it, automatically it grabs you. You don't really own your stuff when you worship it. It flat out owns you. Now look up here. I'm looking at some of you, and and I I figured I knew if I showed that what would happen, and it's happened. Some of you are are not going to go any further or hear a word I have to say until you're convinced that that little monkey is okay. (laughs) What happened to the baboon? What happened? There's a rope around his neck. Is he going to kill him? He did not kill him. That baboon was, you're, you're welcome, Nicole. The baboon was not harmed. In fact, no animals of any kind were harmed in the making of this sermon, I promise you. All right, so we can continue. Is that okay? Can you stay with me now? Friends, many people know that the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And so as the longest chapter, talking about Scripture and the Word of God and the value of the Word of God, it gets a lot of billing. Plus, it's roughly in the middle. So if you flop your physical Bible open, you're probably gonna get near it and you just go and it goes on page after page after page. But a lot of times when something's number one, the silver medalist doesn't get much billing. Anybody know what the second longest chapter in the Bible is? It's like a Jeopardy question. No, no one's given it much thought. It's number seven for all of you trivia buffs. It's Numbers chapter seven, and it's all about our stuff. It's all about the giving of money. So once again, here in chapter 16, Jesus is going to talk about our stuff, and he's going to launch into another story. And This time, it's a parable full out from beginning to end about our stuff and how to manage it and how to think about it and how to use it actually for his glory. So let me read. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought against him, this manager, <clears throat> that... This man was wasting his possessions, verse 2. And he called him and he said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be the manager or the steward, some of your Bibles say. The other day we were at a friend's house playing a game called Origins. Have any of you played that game, the board game, or, you know, it's got little cards. Anybody play that? Let me see if I can remember how. Nathan, I know you play it because you're this illustration. Do not play the game Origins with Nathan, My son. Uh, you know, it was a graduation thing and there were a lot of teenagers there and a lot of parents and adults and they got this crazy idea of playing Origins and they'd heard that Nathan was kind of good at this kind of stuff. So they made sure that I go get Nathan. They were, they were, it was hard to find them. They were in a room studying the Lord's word. No, they're actually playing Black Ops, I think, you know. And so we got them and we convinced them to come in and play. And the object of, of the game is to take a, a saying and read it, and then give the meaning, like here's a saying, um, pay through the nose was one of them, and you're supposed to find out what is the origin of that, where did that come from, and what it means, pay through the nose, is to pay an exorbitant amount, just to pay a huge amount for something, but that object of the game is not to define it, the object of the game is to say, where did this, that comes from this, so what everybody does who plays the games is they try to write a definition that sounds really, really good, And you get points if you, and you write your name to it, and then the reader will read these things, and you get points if people actually believe your lies, if people believe that what you wrote is the real definition. And if you're the reader, you get points if you can throw everybody off the real definition. And uh, it's funny, because when Nathan was reading this, I knew that he was, if there's a shrewd way or a sly way to play this game, or if there's something, he's going to do it. And I knew that he would, and so when he's getting ready to read this, he's reading the real definition, and I didn't pick up on it in time, you know, stumbling over it. Well, the reader's supposed to write out the real one. He wrote it, so of course he can read it, but if you kind of read it and you stumble over the words and everything, people are going to think that's not the real one. And I remember he suckered a lot of people in and got a lot of points. And then when it was his time to write it, he wrote the most elaborate, incredible definitions. They sucked everybody in. Everybody believed it was the real thing. I mean, the real definition was far less appealing, was far less attractive, and got a lot of points that way. He's shrewd. He knows how to play the game. He knows how to throw people off. And you wouldn't normally compliment that. And here we've got a a guy who's, now I'm not calling my son evil, but in this... In this parable, you have a steward that basically is, he crosses the line, he's evil. He does things that are not good. And what's different about this parable than any other parable is that Jesus, God compliments him. He compliments this evil, shrewd money manager that's about to get fired. Now, please don't get lost in this. Don't assume that, that Jesus is saying that doing bad things is good. There's a lesson to be learned below the surface that's incredibly valuable. Let's pick up again with verse three. And the manager said to himself, "Is the manager that's about to get fired. What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me now? I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg, I won't do that. Verse four, I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, People may receive me into their houses, and I'll still be well taken care of. So summoning his master's debtors, there's a whole lot of people that owed money, and he got them all together, one by one. He said to the first, how much do you owe the master? And he said, 100 measures of oil. So he said to him, well, take your bill, sit down quickly, do it right now, or or this won't last, and write it out for 50. So you tracking with me here? Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, Jesus isn't saying, and I commend this guy because I like that kind of sneaky behavior. He's telling the story, and he's saying the manager that fired him had to sit back and go, you're good. I mean, that's good. It, it really messed me over, but you took care of yourself. That was brilliant. That was smart. And he's not saying, it's, it's not a, a, a condoning of whether it's holy or unholy or good or bad. It's bad, but it was brilliant. So what could he possibly be getting at with this? master commend him for his dishonest manager and for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world, that means worldly people, those who are unbelievers, those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they tend to be, get this, more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Did you catch that? This is what Jesus is after in this parable. And this makes it different than any other story about money in the Gospel of Luke. He's saying, we who are believers, who are adopted sons of God, We, who are Christians, we ought to care and invest and build our lives into forever and ever and ever and all eternity, and we don't. We don't. And yet you take this this shrewd steward, this money manager, and he's taking care of what? Well, I'll just put it to you this way. When we work our whole lives and we save you know, you might start working at, you know, 17, 18, 19, and you just work all the way till 65, and you're working and putting tons of money away, and and being very careful, and, and maybe not going on vacations, and just saving, and trying to get a huge 401k, and just pile that up for what? What's it called? Retirement. Retirement. So we just work most of our lives for a little piece of our lives. And Jesus is saying, watch people as they scramble for that while believers do next to nothing for life to get ready for life that will go on forever and ever and ever without end. Why is that? Now, some of you probably are sitting back going, well, we don't need to. It's taken care of, right? No, this life sends on, brings us station, and and what we will be in control of, what we'll be in charge of in heaven largely depends on how we conduct our lives for Jesus down here. The investments we make as believers down here determine what life is going to be like up there. And yet we know that, I think, most of us in our mind, but we don't live that way. So I find that quite a few unbelievers are laser-focused on taking care of their temporary circumstances. But believers... Aren't laser focused on anything. Unbelievers are on their computers and iPhones communicating with their financial advisors, checking their 24 hour stock quotes, shrewdly and carefully planning for their five years of retirement. But watch this Christians, on the other hand, when it comes to planning for forever, just not so much. We're nowhere near as aggressive as our worldly colleagues are in preparing for their temporary retirement. Something's wrong there. Then maybe we talk about what we believe or what we say we believe is coming, but maybe we just don't really believe that. Maybe scripture and eternity and being adopted sons and daughters of the Lord has become more of a safety net for us. Well, I got that taken care of. I'm glad if. If Jesus is real and you really got to believe in him and receive him as Savior and confess your sins, I did that. I checked that off. I'm not real sure about it. I have a lot of doubts. But even if I'm wrong, it's not such a bad life. But if I'm right, I'm covered. But that's a far cry from loving the Lord and investing in heaven. And can you see how you, if you don't get over that hurdle, how can you live an intimate, close relationship with the Lord when you're keeping him at arm's length and just sort of checking it off? That's what he's saying here. Something's wrong. Your heart isn't sold out for investing in eternity. So verse nine, it continues on. And what's gonna happen now from this point on is Jesus is gonna shift gears and give us at least three or four, I don't remember how many, benefits of living different than the world. He's gonna say there's benefits, incredible eternal benefits to living a life of generosity. And we need to get these. Here's the first one, if you're writing things down. Giving rewards us in eternity. I've already said that, but let me kind of unpack that a little bit. Giving rewards us in eternity. When asked how much money his father left behind when he died, I love what Andrew Carnegie's son said. He gave a classic answer. You know, how much, I mean, his father was one of the first billionaires. And, you know, there was all kinds of press there when his father died. Wow, I mean, how wealthy was he? I mean, how much money did he leave behind? And his son just just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, all of it, everything. And that's not what they were expecting to hear. But think about how logical that answer is. What do you mean, how much money did he leave behind? He, I, he didn't take any of it with him. So for at least a moment, his son was pretty focused on the truth, wasn't he? Naked I came into this world, naked I leave, what Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Everybody is dirt poor, when they leave. You don't take anything, not even the clothes on your back. And then you'll stand before the Lord and only what you sent ahead and invested in heaven will be waiting for you or not. So imagine this. I don't care if you're Bill Gates and you're worth $57 billion. How much when Bill Gates dies, if he doesn't love Jesus Christ and embrace him as Lord and Savior, will he leave behind all of it? You don't need to say, well, last time I checked, it was 57 billion. It might have gone up to 61 billion. Let me check, because that really says a lot about Bill Gates. It says nothing. It says he's foolish. It says if he didn't live for the Lord, he left it all behind. It means nothing. It's not his. He can't get his hands on it. He can't connect in any way. It's done. It's done. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who's going to entrust you with true riches? So that's the first thing. Number two, giving releases us in ministry. Man, I can't tell you how many, uh, over 20, 25 years, including Young Life and all of ministry, I can't tell you. This question just keeps coming up. I, I might as well get used to it. Pastor Rob, how can I know the will of God? How can I know what God's planned for me? What does God really want me to do? When I talk to people like this, I'm thinking, well, do you read your Bible? Not really. You spend any time in prayer. Uh, that's hard for me. Why? Uh, I'm ADD. I can't pray more than uh, 10 seconds. Uh, and you're wanting to know what God's will is for your life. Exactly. Because I know he's got big plans. Why would he? Why would he have big plans for you? You don't have five minutes for him. I would say back up, get to know him just a little wee bit and perhaps he'll reveal his plans. But I can tell you some plans that he has for you right now. Plans to get to know you and plans for you to get to know him. So the first plan is listen to him. Read his word every day. Talk to him, pray every day. Develop into somebody who studies faithfully the word of God. Develop into somebody who listens carefully with a spiritual ear and a discerning ear for the voice of God. And you'll get to know him. And my goodness, the easiest thing in the world will be to understand what the will of God is for your life. But when you're asking without him on the throne of your heart, without even barely knowing him at all, I can just pretty much tell you he's not gonna have any special will or plan for your life. It doesn't work that way. The alphabet starts at A, not Z. He's not going to start with, look, here's the great plan. Next week, I want you to know that at Panther Stadium, or what's it called these days? Bank of America Stadium. What's the name of that stadium? Bank of America America Stadium. Who should I pick on today? There's Mark DeVita. Mark, sorry, you you sat up front. It's dark. I can see only the first few rows. Mark, listen, I want you to get ready. This is the voice of God speaking through Pastor Rob here. Next week on uh, Saturday night, Bank of America Stadium would be filled to the rafters. 77, 78,000 people will be waiting for you to share the gospel. You're the next Billy Graham. That's my will for your life. Next week it starts. You ready? Not so much? Gang, it doesn't start that way. And I thought maybe not ever, not really. But it, it doesn't start that way. Look at how Billy Graham even started. He did not start in stadiums. He started faithfully in the little things. He started praying a little bit and ended up praying hours a day. A faithful, dedicated person who spent hours in the word of God and developed a relationship and a deep intimacy with the Lord that just over the years got closer and closer. And then those things grew. You don't start at the end. You start at the beginning. And yet it's the people who are are so anemic and, and, and just starting just, toddlers in the relationship with the Lord that always want to know, what's God's grand plan for my life? Well, I don't know, but I can pretty much guarantee that you're not going to know either until you start being able to stomach just the very basic milk of the word and get started there. Giving releases us in ministry. I might not be able to build things. I'm not the person that you're probably gonna to come to if your car breaks down and go, Pastor Rob, can you just uh, tinker under the hood and see what you can come up with? You don't want that. <laughs> what I will come up with is ruining your car. It will be worth nothing when I'm done. So I don't know, I, I'm not able to really do that or, or, or put the wiring together you know, so we can sing. If I did that, there'd be no singing. There'd be no worship. And you might not be able to sing up here or maybe some of you aren't able to preach, but one thing is common to everybody in this room. I figured it out this week. Money. And I know right now what a couple of you are thinking. I just lost my job. That's not funny, Pastor Rob. It's still not common to me. Well, you need to know this. If you live in America and you have a roof over your head at all, and I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that's most of you, then you're wealthier than about 95% of the world. So I think I can go out on a limb and talk to you about this. And that's why I believe God uses money as the ultimate test to see who he can trust to even greater extent in ministry. It's money that he's going to use as a test. The old great evangelist D.L. Moody said, I can see more about the spirituality of a man by reading through his checkbook than I could ever know by reading through his prayer book. And some of you go, I don't get that. What's a prayer book? Well, like a journal. You know, back then a lot of people would have a journal or write down flowery thoughts about God and what they were learning. And he said, you know, I can open up that and I can probably read some beautiful flowery things in there. But I don't know if that tells me much about a man, but if I look at his checkbook, I will know whether he wrote in there is true or whether what he wrote in there is a complete hypocrisy and a lie about his life. Why? Because money tells where we're really at. It's pretty easy by looking at somebody's day runner or calendar and their checkbook, whether or not God is on the throne of their heart or stuff is on the throne of their heart. It's really not that hard. Some of you are like, well, that doesn't really apply to me, Pastor Rob. I don't hardly make no money. But listen, you can, be on the, you can be below the poverty line. Here's what I learned this week. I kind of added this up. And let's say you're making $15,000 a year. Okay, that's, that's, that's poor. That's the poverty line. That's below it in this country. Well, I added it up. And between the ages of 20 and 60-ish, and guess what? If that's you and that's all you ever make, you will have been entrusted with more than half a million dollars in your life. So of we you go, well, I mean, if you put it that way, it, it sounds like a lot. Half a million sounds like a lot no matter how I put it. Jesus is simply asking, what are you going to do with it? When are you going to start? When's your heart going to kick in? If I can trust you in this area, then I know that I can trust you to do greater and greater things for my Father's kingdom. But if I cannot trust you, if I can't, and it proves over and over in your life, if you're not faithful with money, something is insignificant and even small amounts of it, I cannot and will not commit you to a fuller, more impactful ministry for my kingdom. Why would I do that? Why? Let me ask you, why would God do that? Some of you get so upset with God. Why is so-and-so doing so much? I wanna do that. I'm more talented. I'm more gifted. I could do more. Why him, not me? This is probably Why? This is probably why. Because if you look at your life, I want you to answer the question silently in your heart. Have you been faithful with little things? If the answer is no, and you want to know the will of God, start there. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And here's the third thing. Giving replenishes us financially. Now that doesn't make sense to a lot of you. I know that. You go, wait, 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 you're just giving, Pastor Rob, let me help you with this simple elementary thing that you don't get, Pastor. Giving, it's out of my hands. When I give it away, I don't have it anymore, so how could that help me have it? Well, we've been entrusted with that which isn't really ours as believers. Let me just explain this a different way, because we like to think of our stuff as our stuff. We even put that word in there, our. Well, that's an incorrect word. It's not. Literally, the Lord has put in our possession as believers the first fruits that belong to Him. If you want to know where I get that, write down Leviticus 23:10. It talks about first fruits, and it says the first fruits are his, not ours. some of you going, can you explain that last part? What? What's a first fruit? Well, it's also called the tithe. Oh, I'm telling Pastor Rob, I'm telling my mom and dad, you cussed. You said the T word. Anytime you bring it up, I've seen my parents, they get so upset. It must be a cuss word, right? You would think. You would think the way people react to it. The word tithe, though, just means, it's a math word. It just means tenth. Tithe, Hebrew word for ten. Tenth. Therefore, the first tenth as first fruits of everything that we make, according to Leviticus 23, is God's, not ours. But, but I'm holding on to it. I, I see my paycheck. It's But God says, that's mine. I'm going to let it sit in your greedy little hands, and I'm going to watch what you do with it. But it's really mine. Make no mistake. Don't be confused about it. I own it. And by the way, God's bigger than you. And if he wants it, he could beat you up and take it, (laughs) right? But he doesn't. Because in this life, it wouldn't be love if it was forced. He's waiting to see, will you love me back? Will you dethrone that stuff? Will you give it back? Will you realize you're a steward and not an owner, really? I'm the owner. You're the money manager. <laughs> in fact, let me put it this way. I know you guys feel this way at some level. Maybe this will help. When the offering basket is passed, most of us, hopefully all of us, but most of us at least, aren't tempted to reach in and take a little bit out, right? Some of you going, can I, th- can I think about that? No, you, you can't. And you can't even go, well, I don't take a lot out. I try to take 10% out. I try to look at, no. Most of you let it pass, I hope, right? And don't go, is that for me? Is that for me? No, that's God's. You let it pass. You don't struggle with that. Yet when I don't tithe, that's exactly what I'm doing. When I don't tithe, it's as though I reached in there and took it right back again. Now, listen, there are always those who will search the scriptures. I I used to just get so upset about this. Now I just get a kick out of the ignorance and immaturity of it. There are always those who will actually search. And you want to see how you can turn some people into incredible theologians? Get them to defend, not tithing. I know some people that know more about what the Bible doesn't say about tithing than they know about anything else about the Bible. They can put together incredible theological discussions about being selfish that aren't there, but they don't know the most basic truths that are there. Even the most simple stories. So they'll try desperately, if they can't figure this out, then they will find Bible teachers that they can bring around and point to that say, this guy says we don't have to tithe. It usually comes out something like this, if you want to know. Over the years, I've put it together, super simple. Well, I believe that tithing is an Old Testament thing that no longer is really relevant to all of us who live life under grace. Pastor Rob, what do you think about that? Look up here. I'll give you three responses to that bunk. Number one, tithing is seen prior to the law anyways, with Abraham tithing to this mysterious, beautiful character named Melchizedek. Uh, well, the, the law is the Old Testament. I, uh, you prove my point. That's, well, the law was given to Moses. Three of you realize that? Ten Commandments. The law was given to Charlton Heston, actually, on that mountain, in that movie. Right, Moses. Well, Abraham predates Moses by quite a bit. And he was practicing this principle of first fruits and giving back already. So that kills that argument. That's a law thing. No, it actually isn't a law thing. It predates the law. Number two, tithing was commended by Jesus when he told the Pharisees. So a lot of people say, Well, Jesus never said anything about this. Tithing was commended by Jesus when he told the Pharisees that although they should remember justice and mercy, they should not forget the tithe. They should not cease tithing. That's found in Luke eleven forty two, the very book we're studying. Tithing, number three, was taught by the Apostle Paul when he told the Corinthians to give according to how much God had prospered and blessed them, which the early church took to mean every time as the tithe. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. So this simple kindergarten argument that people will give can be blown out of the water with those three principles, and it's dead on arrival, D O A and yet people keep scrambling. So gang, what are they really doing? Bottom line, when we seek loopholes and make excuses, it is a dead giveaway that we don't own our stuff, our stuff owns us. So whenever I'm in a conversation like that and people are just going on and on, uh, well, I think in the Greek, and, and they just keep going, i going to go, stop. Do you give it all to God's kingdom work? Well, I do when I'm moved. Let me guess, you're never moved. I'm moved sometimes. When was the last time? I don't remember. I didn't think I'd be tested, pastor. No, let me guess. You don't, you're never moved. Because I can already tell that on the throne of your life is your stuff, or you wouldn't be making these arguments. And you wouldn't be so scared that giving God a little tiny piece of God's stuff back to him, or stewarding and managing it well would ruin your life. What is that really saying about God? What is that really saying about how much you do or don't trust God? Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Are we going to go into that one deeper, Pastor Rob? What do you think that really means? Are you serious? You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot say of two completely opposing masters, I love them both. Yeah, I I serve both. That doesn't even work on Star Wars, right? You cannot serve the dark and light. You cannot serve Darth Vader and the evil side. And even in a comic book, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in reality. It doesn't work in real life. And it certainly doesn't work with God. You cannot serve God and Satan. Yeah, but you said money's not bad. And I'm going back to that. Money isn't bad. I didn't say money, good or bad. I said loving it. And when you serve and love and are faithful to your master, there's some emotion attached there. You cannot emotionally have your heart given to two completely opposing points of view. You will either serve one and love the other actually and just falsely serve the one, or you'll love the other and despise the other one. That needs no unpacking. It's just the truth. But if you get over that hurdle on the other side, you will see that God, according to Malachi, we're not even going to go into that, Malachi chapter three, verse 10, but the whole chapter tells you that God is just waiting. It's the only place in scripture where he tests us and says, just try me. I love you. I actually want to bless your life. I want to take care of you. Like I said before, God's big enough to beat you up and take your lunch money away from you. He's not a bully God though. And God hasn't forgotten that your stuff is really not your stuff. God has not lost a track of his account. He knows what's his and he's just waiting for you to give it back to him and trust him to give much more back to you. Man, why would I want to add anything to that? It's that simple. It's that beautiful. My prayer is that many of you, even today, even starting in just a few moments, because we're going to give back to God right now, we're going to worship him with our tithes and offerings. you'll Use that point right here and go, you know what? I have never lived like that. It ends today. I'll give you the first fruits. I'll tithe back to you. Your God on the throne of my heart, Lord Jesus, not my stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you trust us with so many good things in life and you bless us. And we're your children. We are sons and daughters if we've received you as Lord and Savior in our life, God. Lord, I pray for anybody struggling with this. God, if they're fighting in their souls right now, if they're angry at me, if they feel this, this stiffness and this. And this resistance and frustration, God, help them to know that's not you. If they're confused, that's not you. Satan's the author of confusion, not you. But God, the very things they want in life, to to have peace, to have security, to have joy, to let go and have freedom, are found in the dethroning of a false God and the enthroning of the real God, you. But God, that's not easy. We need your help and your Holy Spirit to guide us in this. Lord, I pray that you'll bless this time of giving back as we worship you by giving your stuff back to you and believing that you'll take care of us in return.
1: In Jesus' name, amen.